good evening. Welcome to the Year Now podcast. Uh, my name is Craig, and we're recording this on the 31st of May, 2022. And tonight with me, I've got Mark. Hey. And Bronwyn. Hello, everyone. And a special guest, Alexander. Good evening. Uh, isn't he getting less special over time? I mean, this is the second time we've had Alexander on here. Before we know it, he's going to be like a regular guest, and then he's just going to replace one of us, surely. Well, well, we have to follow TV sitcom rules, you know, for the first half season, two seasons, you know, the regular person is called the special guest star. So maybe that's how we, have, we need to refer to Alexander for the next little while. I'm okay. feeling less special all the time here. <laughs> We'd have to define what a season is, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's that simple. Well, it, no, I mean, you know, if, if it's Netflix or British TV, a season is what, six to eight episodes? And then an American TV season, it's 22? Hmm. No, no, I'm generally I'm, a break. Yeah. I'm telling you guys, in, in the MP3, there is, a, for the each episode, there is a space where I have to type in the season, and it's season 2022. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, I see. The decision decision has been made without our consent or uh, input here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I figured it was too much tedium for uh, for you guys to even need to have any input. So uh, yeah, okay. So for this year, Alexander, you are our um, and featuring special guest. But by next year, unfortunately, we're not going to be introducing you like that anymore. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can remain special for six I months. I feel like Oliver Twist with the begging bowl. Please, sir, may I be a special guest? <laughs> Mark, you were going to talk to Alexander about uh, an article that he has written for the upcoming I, newsletter. Hang yes. on. I was going to give him a talking to because he decided to talk about shit in our newsletter, and I don't think this is appropriate. <laughs> Alexander, it was really interesting when, when I received your article because I think I just started writing an article of my own for the newsletter where I was ranting against um, accelerated Christian education. And I kind of talked about how this curriculum in this country is really bad and anti-science. And towards the end of it, I started talking about pro-science and getting, you know, how science is flawed, but it's the best thing we have. And I recommended the book, A Brief History of Nearly Everything, um, or sorry, Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. And this is where your article starts off. So it, it seemed to be pretty, pretty nice that one led into the other in that way. I found the book in a charity shop. I have seen it around for years. Something about the title put me off. Um, so I've never taken an interest or, you know, sought that out to read. But it was in the charity shop for, you know, a buck. So I thought, well, let's give this a try. And um, boy, I misjudged it from the title. It's a mm -hmm. really interesting book. And I've really uh, been enjoying reading it. Yeah, he, he goes but, into a lot of really interesting stuff. Well, I read a lot of the popular science books. So a lot of the stories he tells are familiar to me. Mm. And some of those stories I've read told better. Uh, but other things he talks about, I haven't read before. He has a lot on the history of geology that I didn't know, for example. Uh, but the, the thing I wrote my paper about was a very familiar story to me. And it's a story of Penzias and Wilson discovering the cosmic microwave background. Now, so for those of you who don't know, Penzis and Wilson were uh, radio engineers who worked for Bell Labs in upstate New York. And they um, were, were given permission to use an old radio broadcaster antenna 
I don't know what exactly it is, uh, but they were they were given permission to um, to turn it into a radio telescope. So they were um, adapting it to a radio telescope, and they turned it in every direction, and they always got this little hissing sound, this sort of buzzing in their retina that they didn't know what it was. And the first thing they thought is they were getting interference. So they pointed at New York City to see if it was more interference from there. It wasn't. They pointed it every direction in the sky. It was the same sound everywhere they looked. They thought it must be some problem with the instrument. So they went and cleaned their instrument. Um, and they found that some, some birds were nesting. And so they cleaned out the birds. And still the hiss persisted. And at some point, they said, well, we are detecting this hiss. And then they contacted the local university. And sure enough, some of the local university had just been um, theorizing that there ought to be a cosmic microwave background. And they had detected it. Hoorah. Uh, so Nobel Prizes for everybody. And it's, um, you know, it's a happy success story. So but, this, uh, is a, this is a nice little confluence of those two things, isn't it? The, the practical, these two guys with this big antenna. And for context, it's like a big kind of rectangular almost hallway or something. It's a big metal box with an open end that kind of bends out of one end, but it's big enough that people can climb into it. Um, yeah, and they they were testing actually, yeah. on this. And the other end of it was the theory where where people were were thinking that this cosmic microwave background, this kind of three degrees Kelvin signal should be everywhere in the universe as the leftover of the expansion. And you're just happening to have the two of them, you know, find out what each other's working on and figure out it's the same thing. It's quite an interesting story. Well, it is an interesting story. And uh, it's also a story about, you know, when the, when the time for an idea comes and the, the, it's like time has come, um, the people thought they had the, the theorists were looking and they were, were planning how might we, um, how might we uh, study this or how might we detect it? And they were, you know, writing a grant or thinking they had lots of time. And then they got this call. Someone had already had already done the work. So apparently the, the one theorist who talked on the phone to Penzis and Wilson, when he put the phone down, he said to his colleagues, we've been scooped <laughs> because someone had beaten them to the punch, which is also a nice, a nice element of the story. Uh, but what struck me about the, the version that Bill Bryson has and about versions of the story I've read in just every history of science book I've ever looked at, and I've looked at a lot, was that while cleaning their instrument, one of the things they had to do is clean out bird shit. At one point, some birds had nested in their, in their antenna, and they had to clear out the birds. There was bird poop on their machine. They had to clear out the bird poop. They think that, that the bird poop might be causing the hiss. It didn't. But one of the things they did was to clean bird shit off their antenna. Now, in the story of the discovery of the cosmic microwave background, the cleaning of the bird shit does not seem to be particularly important. It's not the, it didn't lead to the discovery. It was a false, uh, you know, a false path they went down. They thought this might be the explanation. It wasn't. Uh, but every version of the story you read includes the ritual scouring of the bird shit. And there's one popular um, science book I read that even refers to the story as, I'm going to tell you a story about bird poop. One day, Penzis and Wilson, dot, dot, dot. And uh, so I became struck by how salient, how significant a role the bird poop plays in the telling of this story. I guess mm. it's an everyday thing that people can sort of connect to. And that's what at least makes it a hook that 
give some sort of human interest to the story. Well, but indeed. I, th- I mean, I think a lot of people maybe can't relate to creating a radio telescope. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know what a radio telescope is like. And when I saw a picture of Penzance and Wilson's instrument, I was very surprised at what it looked like. I, you know, had imagined something more like a, you know, like a, like a dish. <laughs> and it mm. wasn't like that at all. So I think one of the, the differences between me and you, Alexander, is, that, is at this point that I'd read about the bird poop. That's me done. It's an interesting story. I have no reason to doubt it. And I leave it at that. But your article, you actually went and did so much looking up basically the history of talk about this incident. Right. You, you really went deep into this. Well, I don't know how deep I went into it because I wrote it in one day. <laughs> I, I, I have long thought about writing this as a scholarly article and trying to get it published in a journal, The History of Science or something or other, um, because I was struck by so often you would see this story about the, the ritual scouring of the bird poop. Um, but it made me think about uh, literary genres. And the genre it made me think of is hagiography. Now, in the, the history of Christian religion, uh, there's a there's a set genre of writing which is the life of a saint, and so that's what a hagiography is. Hagia is the Greek word for for holy or saint. So a hagiography is a biography of a saint, and so a biography of a saint. What's it like? Well, the saint was born. He lived this life. He did these special deeds. What a good man was he! Hurrah! And that's the sort of basic story of a hagiography. But to try and make saints more relatable to the audience often hagiographies will include a little story about something human the saint once did, or, oh, he liked birds or whatever it is. And uh, so I wondered if we could tell the story about the discovery of the cosmic microwave background and analyze it as if it were a saint's life. So Penzis and Wilson, Nobel Prize winners, maybe the, the ranks of Nobel Prize winners is kind of analogous to the, the collection of saints and the stories of their achievements and their lives is sort of like the life of a saint. And so the ritual scouring of the bird shit is important because it humanizes these illustrious figures. So that was the idea I had in the article that uh, maybe Bill Bryson is writing, uh, you know, a type of religious text for unbelievers. And uh, the story of the great scientists is like the story of saints in a, in a Christian religious text. And I was struck by this comparison. And I guess if that was the case, if they are, you know, trying to humanize, this would explain why it appears so often along with the story, why it's such a seemingly important part, something that everybody wants to include. Coming from someone who's kind of in the midst or sort of in the early stages of PhD research in a sort of in a health field, for me, the sympathy is not necessarily in the story of the saint, but in the idea of dealing with a major confounding factor, you know, when you're doing mm-hmm. collecting data and doing data analysis and you're getting your statistics, you're always asking, okay, is this result as significant as I think it is? Or is there some other background factor or confounding factor, which is actually truly influencing the result of getting such as the economic state, the economic condition of the people that you're working with, or, um, you know, their race, ethnicity, sex. So, to hear this story from a science context, it, I find it incredibly funny, but it's also, yeah, the confounding factor. Birch it. Got to get rid of that. Got to say, you know, you got to prove that there's nothing else that could potentially cause this background noise or this background hiss. And I, I kind of well, like it for that. Well, one of the things they thought that might be going wrong with their antenna is they thought they might be getting radio signals from New York City. Hmm. 
So one of the things they did is they pointed the antenna at New York City to see, did the signal get stronger? No, it did not. They pointed it away from New York City. Did the signal get weaker? No, it did not. So that's the same process of the confounding, trying to, trying to eliminate the, you know, the false signals or eliminate the confounding variables. But in the telling and retelling and retelling and retelling of this story, the pointing at New York doesn't get the same airtime that the bird poop does. People like the bird poop. The bird poop is funny. It's humanizing. And so it's not just a story of confounding factors because... There has to be a reason why this confounding factor gets so much tension and the other confounding factors, maybe not so much. The other th- interesting thing that I find about the story too, is that once the discovery had been made, then they pointed out that, well, you know, all the little white dots of snow that you get on an analog TV set between the channels or when there's not a channel transmitting, that is the actual cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, they discovered this in the 1960s, but TV was around before that. So it makes me wonder what people had thought, what scientists had thought was the explanation for this visual signal on the TV before it was discovered that it was actually the cosmic microwave background radiation. Well, it's not all CMB, from what I understand. A portion of it is but there okay. are other sources for that interference as well. So it would be there even without the CMB. Right, right. Okay. So it's a small portion of it, and it could be explained as... I can't yeah. remember. In my head, it's either 10% or 90%. I can't remember which end yeah, it is, well. but it, it's one or the other. <laughs> well, let me Google that for you, Mac. Oh, thank you, Craig. <laughs> You slapped me down on a podcast with let me Google that for you. You didn't even send me the link. You did it with your voice. That hurts. Anyway, I'm going, I'm going to have to do a little bit of reading on this. Yeah. I mean, the cosmic microwave background is really an interesting thing because it's some of the best evidence for the Big Bang. And I think the Big Bang is a highly counterintuitive event. I remember uh, when I was a child first learning about cosmology, you know, the Big Bang was still one of many theories. And I remember thinking, that can't possibly be true. And, um, you know, it turns out it is. The evidence is really strong. But that, that the strength of that evidence hadn't yet trickled down to the popular stuff I was reading when I was a kid. So it's sort of interesting to see how, you know, the, the consensus of what's, what's a theory and what's established it changes over time. And I think as an extension of just knowing that there is a, a cosmic microwave background and knowing its temperature is in what the last three or four decades has been a lot of work to try and map the fluctuations in that temperature, right? And, and that tracing backwards has helped scientists to figure out a lot about the early conditions, about how the expansion happened. Yes, uh, there's a lot of work being done on the cosmic microwave background. Uh, they launched satellites to try and map it in great detail. I once made, uh, gave a popular lecture on the history of astronomy, and I showed three different maps of the cosmic microwave background taken with increasingly sophisticated satellites. And it's fun to see the, you know, the things, the blurry things come into detail. And uh, so it's, uh, it's a major discovery. It absolutely earns the, you know, they, they earn their Nobel Prizes fair and square. Absolutely. Mm. But um, I just, I'm still struck by the importance of the bird shit and the telling of the story. Given that the bird shit is so inessential to the discovery. Okay, so would your next step then be 
if trying to prove this, to look for other popular science stories and how many of them might have another humanizing element in? I mean, could you think of any off the top of your head? Well, off the top of the head, I'm thinking about Newton getting hit with the apple. Okay, that's a good start. <laughs> which, which I don't I would, even think is true. I don't think that actually happened, but people like the story. So maybe something that's more contemporary to the Birdshit story is um, how they found um, HeLa cells from Henrietta Lacks. Mm. So for those who aren't familiar, um, she, she was a black woman who died in 1951 with um, cancer. Um, her cancer cells were harvested from the cervix without consent, but they found that, um, you know, they were immortal, so to speak. And those cells went on to, for, to you know, to help us find, help them, Jonas Salk, find a cure for polio. Um, and another way it was used within laboratory science um, to help create standardized um, instruments and um, utensils like your flasks and um, your test tubes to help them be more accurate for science, scientific testing. So what's the humanizing element of that story? Because from what I understand, that's actually a really tragic story. That The fact that it was kept from the family for so many years, uh, they never wanted to admit that they were using these cells because of the risk of having to pay compensation. It just when I've heard the telling of this story, um, it, it's been horrible. Yeah, but, but it can still be human. Hmm. It's this well, incidental. It's this. It's this unusual finding, it's, and it's gone on to create this a massive impact on healthcare that everyone sort of has benefited from, but the the depths of it and the origins of it does come from a family tragedy. And that's something that a lot of people, and I think a lot of black people can really relate to and really understand in a way that many, many of us can't. Well, if I were gonna write a story about the scientific biographies of saints' lives, I don't think that would be a good example for me to use in that particular article because the human element there is so tragic and awful. But there's also the human element is not irrelevant to the story, the way the, the apple or the bird shit is irrelevant to the discovery of gravity or to the cosmic microwave background. Mm -hmm. The human element there is actually central to, to what happened. So I, I think what I'm interested in is people telling a story or telling an element of a story that is just sort of funny or weird, uh, but doesn't necessarily have any strong relationship to the actual scientific discovery, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not getting anything too much. The, the nearest I've got so far is the, um, the LIGO experiment, um, so measuring gravity waves. And the only humanizing thing I can think about that one is the fact that one of the major things that they have to take into consideration is the vibration from trucks. So the very pedestrian thing of trucks driving past causing enough vibration in the ground that it looks a lot like gravity waves. But I don't think that really fits that well, even. I, I heard that they even had to account for wild animals walking past. Oh, really? Like I've done wolves. some work on it. So it's it's one of the citizen science projects where um, they get you to classify what the waves that are picked up by the experiment are. Um, they call them chirps and other things. But you go on a website and you, you get shown a bunch of these pictures of waves and they've pre-trained you on a few of them. And they get you to basically classify them. And they use your classifying to train an AI so that the AI can do it better than humans in future. And I thought that was quite a fun project. I, I might have gone through like 100, 150 of them. Right, so you're a slave to the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I am. But maybe that's another humanizing thing. Have you ever done any citizen science stuff, Alexander? 
I once, uh, there's a you know, program in that you can allow your computer in its downtime to, you can cede its programming power to, a, to a, I don't know, some sort of network. And so scientists can use your program, your computer's downtime to do some sort of research. So I think I was, uh, I was letting my computer be used by folding proteins for a while. Okay, folding at homes. Uh, yeah, it's a good one, actually. I think PlayStations were doing that for a while as well. Uh, but now they're training an AI for that one as well. That one, rather than just trying it randomly, they've got some AIs that are, are getting better and better at it. Mm. So back in the 90s, there was the City at Home screensaver, which uh, was analyzing uh, signals that were being received by City to see whether uh, some sort of intelligent or, or anomalous signal could be detected. And uh, I spent, <laughs> I, I think I uh, processed about 400 sets of data back in the, in the 90s yeah. and uh, didn't I discover can see ET. I can see Alexander shaking his head here, but at one point in New Zealand, I was in the top 50 processors for SETI at home. I, I set so many servers in my basement hmm. uh, running, looking for aliens that I'm pretty sure I had underfloor heating for a while from all the warmth that was coming off my machines. So you'd be well, much better to, to make that uh, Bitcoin mining uh, right now. <laughs> I should have done back then, yeah, except I think back then actually Bitcoin didn't exist. This was like 2006, 2007, but I, I should have invented Bitcoin and then mined it and then I'd be rich. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I think In order to at home is a better use of citizen, citizen science resources. <laughs> uh, Absolutely, yeah. but the... The SETI at home just has that appeal. It's it's that geeky, weird thing that long shot as it probably is, there is definitely something about it. Yeah. Well, okay. it's the more thing of the X-Files, you know, people want to believe. So, yeah. X-Files is not science. It's more <laughs> horror fantasy, I think. To, to clarify the cosmic microwave background radiation on the TV set from the reading that I've done, it amounts to about 1%. Wow, so, oh, I, uh, yeah. I was off by so, an order of magnitude. <laughs> and and so what the rest of it is, is uh, just noise in the TV set system. So in order to detect this, you need very, very low noise um, antenna. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and, and just to correct something, the, the type of antenna that was used was actually a satellite antenna that was used to communicate with um, balloon satellites initially and then the, the Telstar. So um, that presumably would have had to have been quite low noise in order to be able to send signals up into space and bounce them off uh, balloons. Whatever it was, the, the device they had was overtaken by events. Some better technology was invented, mm. and so they didn't need it anymore for its original purpose. And so Penzis and Wilson asked, can we use this to make a radio telescope? Sure, go ahead. And mm. that's where the Nobel Prize came from. So read your popular science. Bill Bryce's book turns out to be good after all. Despite the title. <laughs> and any other books you could recommend, Alexander? Because you at university studied both physics and history, right? So I guess you have a, a love of the crossover there. Uh, there's a, there's a, a scholar named Overby who wrote a book called Einstein in Love, which is a biography of, of the young Einstein. It ends, with, um, it ends in 1915. It's a terrific book. I'd recommend that. Awesome. I will go and borrow it from the internet library. It's really good. I like that book very much. 
Do we need to be setting up affiliate links on Amazon? <laughs> I recommend that book, honestly, without any, um, you know, I'm not getting any kickbacks or pay. I genuinely <laughs> thought it was a good book. Go. Cool. Thank there's you. Also book, I... There's also a book about how Albert Einstein destroyed a planet. <laughs> what? <laughs> so the planet Uranus was discovered just by chance by Herschel. So new planet, very exciting. Wow, there are new planets that no one ever knew about. What else is there? Uh, so this is all very exciting to think that there were new heavenly bodies that could be discovered. Uh, but they were, um, they were tracing the orbit Uranus, and it wasn't quite how it ought to have been, according to Newton's theory of gravity. It was just a little bit off. And people thought, how can this be off? Newton is our universal genius. This, there must be some mistake. And indeed, there was. Uh, so independently, a French, a French um, astronomer mathematician and an English astronomer mathematician did some very, very laborious calculations in the era before computers and said there must be an extra planet at this location. Go and look for it. And the English astronomer sent that letter to the Cambridge Astronomer Royale, who looked at the letter and said, this is the most ridiculous waste of time I've ever seen, and tossed it aside and didn't look. <laughs> and the French scholar sent it to a German astronomer who, with great interest, looked at it and he found it on the first night. It was right where, where the French scholar had said. So the French were very proud and the English were shamed. And this is a fun story in the, in the glorious history of science. Um, so big success. Um, and then they looked at the, the um, orbit of Neptune. And it was just a little bit off. According to Newton's relativity, it wasn't quite where it ought to have been. Maybe there's a new planet. So they tried to find out the orbit of where that new planet would be, pointed their telescope at that spot. Boom, they discovered Pluto. Now, it turns out the discovery of Pluto wasn't actually due to this technique. Um, they just happened to look in the right spot, and there just happened to be Pluto. Pluto isn't a large enough planet to cause the, or large enough uh, astronomical body to cause the, uh, change to Neptune's orbit that was discovered. And in any event, Neptune's orbit doesn't, uh, isn't pertur uh, perturbed in this way. It was just that one of the astronomers was had bad data. And if you remove his bad data from the, from the measurements, then uh, Neptune's orbit is perfectly normal, according to Newton's gravity. So it's, it's just a coincidence. But it was believed for a while that by the same technique that, that had been discovered Neptune, so the, uh, Pluto had been discovered. <laughs> then it was discovered, it was found out, that the orbit of Mercury isn't quite right. You can't, doesn't quite do what Newton said. So people thought, well, two times a charm, let's find there must be some missing planet. So they called this planet Vulcan, and they thought no one had ever seen it because it's very close to the sun. The sun is too bright. So every time there was an eclipse, the Vulcan hunters would come out and try to see if they could find Vulcan orbiting the sun. And there were lots of sightings, but none of them were confirmed. And this was an ongoing scandal in astronomy that nobody could find Vulcan. And I, uh, but the belief in it was so strong. I've even seen astrologers talking about Vulcan, <laughs> which is pretty funny. The astrology, oh, with the astral sign of the influence of the planet Vulcan, blah, 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 blah. And then Einstein comes along and says, I have a new theory of gravity. And the theory of gravity predicts why Mercury's orbit is wrong. There's no need for Vulcan at all. Um, so it's a very exciting uh, story in the glorious history of astronomy. And it's very well told in a book, uh, the exact title of which I've since found online. And that book is called The Hunt for Vulcan, 
and how Albert Einstein destroyed a planet, discovered relativity, and deciphered the universe. So it's a little prolix, but also a very good book, since you asked for book recommendations. Nice. That sounds like two good ones. Thank you. Yeah, that does sound like an interesting book. It's really exciting. I, I, I bought it to read on a holiday, and I thought it would be sort of nice reading. It was such a page turner. It kept me up all night. <laughs> I read it in one sitting. <laughs> Mark, you've apparently been uh, drawn into Counterspin. Yeah, I have. I'll try and make this one quick. But Counterspin, for everyone who's not aware, is uh, it's like an online TV channel. They they just broadcast on some of the weird places like Rumble, um, you know, where the conspiracy theorists are. And the reason for this is because Counterspin are conspiracy theorists um, and they've been removed from Twitter and Facebook and all the usual places that we get our media and they've been relegated to the edges. They've been on GTV, which um, is an interesting site in and of its own right, which means that Counterspin has been hosting some weird adverts on their TV slots I call them TV slots. I mean, it is just online video, but it's all been a little bit weird to watch. But it's basically run by a guy called Kelvin Alp and his now girlfriend, from what I understand, Hannah Spira. And the two of them were down at the Wellington protest earlier in the year at Parliament. Um Kelvin Alp's got a whole bunch of weird stuff that he believes. Um, but interestingly, he does make waves in the conspiracy circles because he is a Freemason. And a lot of other conspiracy theorists really don't like this. They think he's part of the problem. You know, he's one of these satanic child abusing weirdos that they're all fighting against. So he's a fascinating character. He's got a Wikipedia page even because he once tried to get a militia together in New Zealand maybe about 20 years ago with the plan to possibly take over the country. So he's definitely got form. He's got a history. Um, but over the last few weeks, this counterspin alternative media outlet has got themselves a bus and they've been driving around the country, stopping in at little local spots um, all around the North Island up until last week. And I think they're in the South Island now. And um, every evening they'll stop at a place They'll set up camp in maybe so for the one I went to in Wellington, it was a um, little sports building next to a playing field, but they labeled it a stadium, which was hilarious. They really tried to make it sound big, but it had maybe a capacity of 150. Um, and each night they broadcast live onto the Internet and they get a few local people to come up and talk and a lot of it seemed to be just reminiscing their days at the protest. Like these were the glory days, those few weeks that they had parliament. I think a lot of people are talking about how this was utopia. This was, this was how life was meant to be. And if they can only expand this out to cover all 5 million New Zealanders living the same way everybody did on parliament lawn, then we would have no problems in this country. Um, so I don't know who the speakers have been in a lot of places, but for Wellington, we had some interesting people. So we had um, Hika, who is a pastor for Destiny Church, and he was basically there just trying to get people to um, 
what do they say? Lease your vote. So they're not asking for you to give your vote at the next election to Destiny Church. They're asking for you to lease your vote to Brian Tamaki just for this one election so he can get over the 5% hump so that they can be in Parliament. Um, they also is that, had... Is that, like, is that like some sort of reverse tithing where Brian will <sighs> pay them money for their vote? I, I think it's I think the wording is just because when you say you give someone your vote, it feels somewhat permanent. And they're trying to say, no, it's not a permanent thing. You're not huh. really voting for Brian because you're just leasing it for us to get over this hurdle. I think because so many people just don't want to be attached to Destiny Church. They're trying to think of any way they can make it not feel like a commitment to basically a crazy guy who's called himself an apostle. Uh, <laughs> Because no, nobody wants to be associated with that. Um, so there was there was him. There was Matt Shelton, the disgraced doctor from just up the road from me in Plymouthton, who um, basically was quite anti-vax. Uh, he ended up sending an SMS message during the pandemic out to all of his patients, telling them about all the different types of people he thought shouldn't be getting the vaccine. So he ended up losing his job. So the health center didn't want him anymore. And then um, he was suspended by the medical council. He then took the medical council to court and got the suspension undone and was reinstated. But on this night, when I was at this meeting last week, he were was able to announce to us that he had been resuspended again. So the medical council weren't taking the loss in court lying down. They said they had substantive new reason for removing his license again. So it was really nice to hear they're being proactive on this, that it wasn't just that they lost once and they left it at that. The medical council, from what I can see, you know, has very good reason for removing all doctors who are anti-vaccine. I, I think it's a fairly simple thing that you would expect doctors to be on board with. So it's great to see that they haven't just had this knocked back and walked away, that they are they are confident enough that legally they have a leg to stand on, um, that they are going to keep tackling these doctors. It's, it was just, obviously, the crowd was disappointed. Everybody was upset about this hero. Um, and you talked about him a couple of months ago, Craig, I think. He was the guy that found the nanotechnology in the vaccine, right? That they'd been yeah. using a microscope and they saw some weird shapes Ergo, that must be microchips. Yes, I think he's speaking well outside of Zero expertise. Yeah, so so maybe half a dozen speakers in all at this event. Um, what was interesting, because I'd just been through COVID, so I was actually able to turn up without a mask. Normally at these events over the last couple of years, I've been pretty much the only person wearing a mask, except for the first day of the Wellington protest where Bronwyn, you joined me and wore a mask as well. So there were two of us there. Yes, there were. <laughs> and it is a little bit weird being in the middle of a maskless crowd where it's so obvious that you don't agree with what they think. Um, but this night I was able to go maskless, which was it was kind of nice, kind of easier to chill out and, you know, just grab myself a couple of cookies from the side. They were big on the food. They had lots of food there as kind of part of that following on of the communal aspect that I was talking about earlier. But for all the speakers who did fairly well, and a lot of them did, Mary Byrne from Fluoride Free New Zealand was surprisingly very rousing. She's not, she doesn't have a big personality. She's just a hard, tireless worker for that 
crank cause of removing fluoride from our water. But on this night, she spoke really well about the need for unity. And most speakers talked about that, about how everybody needs to come together that they should be able to get 8% of the vote in the next election if everybody just gets together in one party. Uh, and I was starting to get a little bit worried. I was at the point where it's like, God, if they could actually organize themselves, I mean, even just having a few MPs just sounds horrible. And then at the end of the evening, Kelvin Alp got up and spoke. And honestly, I have no love for Kelvin whatsoever. He just seems like an odious man through and through. And he just basically sunk his own cause. Um, he's just got so many like old man beliefs, you know, trans people are not okay. And feminists are not okay. And everybody's not okay. I'm an old man. And I don't understand any of this new stuff that's going on with the youth of today. Um, and eventually he stumbled on Maori rights and talking about a separate Maori health authority. Um, and a woman in the crowd, an old Maori woman spoke up and disagreed with him. And the night ended up really sourly because the two of them just ended up having an argument and i was i was so happy because for all that worry i had about oh god if they can just organize it's like no the personalities that we see in this conspiracy crowd they can't get their shit together for long enough they they honestly cannot agree on enough that they could work together because everybody wants to be at the top and everybody wants to be the one who's at the forefront um and they just can't share so he left me at the end of the night feeling a lot better about it that i i've now thinking that maybe they just can't get it together i have to take um issue with you calling him an old man i just looked up <laughs> when he was born and he's and i'm five years older than he is is he just 50? He's born in 1971. So, wow. 51. Yeah. Okay. He looks older than that. Um, but I apologize to Kelvin for thinking he was older. I apologize for you to you for saying that 50 is old. <laughs> so, Mark, given the people who were at ProFest, I mean, and the people then who attended this Counterspin Roadshow, I mean, do you think that there actually is unity amongst all the groups or are we actually, you know, are we seeing the a more fractured or fragmented arrangement? Because it doesn't sound like Voices for Freedom was anywhere near this. Yeah. So I, I think I think at the grassroots level, there is unity, like all the way through the evening. I was watching people who'd obviously not seen each other since the protest. They would bump into each other as one was going to the loo and one was coming back and it was big hugs all round. And how are you doing? And so. At that level, I think everybody is unified, but I think it's the leadership that isn't. I think the leadership is all about these personalities wanting to be the one person that everybody's listening to. And I think that's where the problem is. If you got rid of them, the grassroots would probably be fine. I mean, you know, the people at Marsden, the people who were at the Wellington protest, they're all pretty much of a kind to an extent, um, but they just don't have this one leader. They have a multitude of leaders all fighting for that spot. And and all of those potential leaders have got big egos, so they won't uh, give up their position to anybody else. Yeah, and they're all convinced that their particular flavors of conspiracies are right. And this is where some of the arguments come about, where, you know, where you've got someone like Karen Brewer saying that the Freemasons are Illuminati and they're all evil. And then here's Kelvin, who is a Freemason. And so when they have those kind of disagreements over which of their ridiculous ideas is right, uh, nobody wants to give way on that. Mm. The Freemasons get such a bad rap, don't they? 
I think they they get the wrong kind of bad rap. I mean, they're not Satanist child molesters, no. um, but they are not evidence based. They've got a lot of crazy ideas and it's a weird culty like club. Um, yeah, it's just not otherworldly. It's <laughs> there's, there's nothing spiritual going on that we need to be scared of. They've just got a bunch of dumb ideas. I've always wanted to go. But you know what? The, the sticking point I've had is they ask you if you believe in a God. And I'm for some reason, mentally, I'm having problems getting over the fact that I have to lie. And I've lied elsewhere going into other groups. But with the Freemasons, I think it feels a little bit more serious. So once I've got my head around the fact that I'm going to have to just lie to the Freemasons, I absolutely will go and join them for a while. But yeah, it maybe when I'm a little bit older, we'll see. And that's that's older than 55, right? What are we calling that? 60, 65? No comment. <laughs> Bronwyn, you wrote an interesting item in the newsletter about feminine technology. Yeah. And go on, finish your thought there, uh, <laughs> Well, And we got some interesting feedback on it. Yeah, yeah. We, we, the whole thrust of the article is looking at the potential impacts of Roe versus Wade and and all these news articles and media pieces that came out about, hey, your smartwatch, your, 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 your smartphone, and how that data that you keep on it, like your period trackers, your pregnancy trackers, and all that information could potentially be used against you in the U.S. Um, and, you know, in the right case, or in, I should say in the wrong case, um, but with the right warrant, you know, charges could be brought against you. And if you're looking at those states that have those trigger laws, which will immediately kick over when Roe versus Wade is overturned, then you have a lot of women who are at risk of being sent to jail for trying to seek abortion, not only in their state, but in many other states. So that's really, really a worrying development. But <laughs> the feedback that came back, um, it's only one piece of feedback, and we'll keep the uh, writer anonymous, but um, someone seemed to have taken a uh, issue with uh, an example I made. I'm talking about the LGBTQIA plus Takatapui community as being an example of people who would use um, like a period tracker for something other than pregnancy. And it was called, uh, I was accused of being politically correct. <laughs> and to be clear, I think, I think you were being politically correct, right? It is, you know, a politically <laughs> but, correct thing to try and use the correct terms. But it was politically correct as a, as a way, as a, like a, another word for uh, a wiggly word for being unscientific. Yeah. See, uh, sorry, I've, I've revealed the gender of the writer. It was a he. I think most yeah. people would have guessed that, right? <laughs> Probably. So he, he was complaining about the use of the term LGBTQIA plus that he didn't understand followed by a Maori word. And he said that maybe we should uh, be explaining these things so that he can figure out whether they're bullshit or not. So it's like, you know, really, really missing the point there. You know, the art, that was a very small part of the article, you know. So we're here talking about the potential loss of female reproductive liberties. And he's just, you know, going into that on, dark yeah. side of uh, New Zealand culture, which is, you know, let's don't use Maori words to discuss you know, things that could happen in New Zealand. So, yes, I wrote an email back to him and just explained uh, where we were coming from and uh, and that we did think it was a bad thing to uh, treat others with respect and and essentially be politically correct. Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess the problem is that that term politically correct is used as a pejorative by, by many people. 
I don't have any problem with it, but it, it does have an interesting history. I think it's, it's usually intended as an insult. Hmm. I mean, the, the thing that it describes may be something you're in favor of, but if that thing is something you support, you probably won't describe it as being politically correct. You'll describe it as being sensitive or as being polite. I read an article a while ago, maybe a good few years ago, and I can't remember who it was by. It might be Robin Ince or someone like that, but it was kind of taking back the term politically correct as something where they were saying this is a positive thing, being politically correct, you know, trying to understand where someone else is coming from and be respectful of them. The argument was basically that this is not a bad thing to do. This is a good thing. This is one of the ways that you're a kind human being. And I really liked that. And it was surprising in this email that this person talked about how they joined the skeptics because of their understanding that we would fight pseudoscience and that skeptics fight political correctness. Um, and for me, who now in my mind, political correctness is a good thing, you know, to read that, it's like, no, actually, that's not what skeptics are for. I mean, it's not like we, we're we all about promoting political correctness because it's not a skeptical, a core skeptical topic, right? It's, it's not something that's core to skepticism. But I think it's just common courtesy that we're we're polite to everybody and try to understand their circumstances as much as possible. I think part of being a skeptic is being willing to confront people. Uh, you know, people believe in their superstition. Skeptics are prepared to confront that. And I think some people take that that desire to confront and confuse it with being rude for the sake of being rude. Maybe that's part of why people who want to be rude about an ethnic minority or a sexual minority or whatever, you know, I, I don't need to pay attention to that. And I don't need to be considered to this. Uh, maybe that to the, them feels similar to the skepticism of people's religions. So we, we think about, you know, our role as the committee for New Zealand skeptics. I don't think we want to necessarily say that we are the end all be all. We are the judge, jury and executioner of all things skeptical in New Zealand. But I think we want to put the get put, you know, put forth a good example and do this, Article, when, when we got this feedback, you know, there was a bit of debate, you know, we certainly, we agreed about, you know, what our stance was going to be, but how we presented. And, you know, we also had some consideration about where it came from and what, you know, how we've come across similar attitudes with regards to Mataranga Maori. Mm. And, you know, thinking about the history of the skeptics and, you know, things that have been written about in previous journals and, you know, what we want, what, what our goals and what we want to see as a committee and as an organization, as we head into, you know, the 21st century. Mm. I think it's, I think the perception perhaps is that we have to draw a very fine line of distinction between what I'm thinking about here is, for example, traditional Chinese medicine. Um, there are many practices within that, that we would consider aren't evidence-based, but we need to be sensitive in terms of calling those out because those things are very much connected to people's sense of identity for an ethnic minority in New Zealand. So I wouldn't be in favour of going and saying, look, all of this traditional Chinese medicine is absolute bullshit and annoying people unnecessarily. I think you have to be very careful about how you um, approach that, and maybe you can um, sort of point out studies and so on without criticizing the beliefs directly. 
Just to be clear, traditional Chinese medicine is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but I take your point that, uh, yes, definitely. I guess thinking about when you challenge something, just doing that really simple part of thinking of the likely outcome of what you're doing. Am I just going to annoy one person by saying this and maybe even just make them double down on their belief? Because if so, am I, am I actually doing anything to help that person or to help people not be conned by TCM? Or am I just making myself feel better that I've had a rant? And if it's just for you that you're doing it and it's not actually outward going to have any positive benefit to anybody else, then it's probably better not being said. I guess we kind of look at, you know, where our membership stands in terms of, say, the breakdown of demographics. I guess we're always sort of looking going, you know, it'd be great to have more, you know, a greater variety of people show up to our events. Um, you know, certainly our skeptics in the pub as it stands is slightly homogenous. And, you know, where does that come from? Um, is it because of particular stances towards, you know, maybe again, say multi-level marketing, what I'm doing, you know, that work may not necessarily have been traditionally an in of interest to skeptics, but now that it's persisted for several decades, we need to consider the long-term impacts and particularly how women are a particular target of this and not necessarily turn around to them saying, oh, you're foolish, you're silly, ha ha ha, you deserve everything that happens to you if you're getting scanned by an MLM. I think maybe traditionally skeptics have been closed off to a wide variety of topics or issues just because they've sort of put it into that, oh, those are silly. That's a silly basket. That's silly Maori. That's silly women. Or, or that we just don't want to go there because, you know, we might have members that have this belief. Certainly when I joined the skeptics uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, it was – it was something of an unspoken thing, but it was spoken occasionally that we don't really go after Christianity, that as a, you know, the religious belief itself is not uh, a skeptical topic because it's just someone's belief and you can't prove or disprove a God. But for me, when it comes to Christianity and pretty much any other religion, although you could argue that their, their God's existence is something that can't be proven or not, pretty much everything that comes out of that can be tested. You know, the power of prayer and, and all this kind of stuff. It's a testable claim. It's a definite claim about how their God impinges on our world and how our God changes things in our world. And as soon as their God does anything, that is testable. Um, and so I think most of religion comes under the purview of skepticism. I certainly agree. And and I think the experience is that um, there are there are many people who are, uh, like theologians and pastors who have a particular academic view of Christianity, but when you actually go and talk to the rank and file Christians, they generally have a lot more fundamentalist and simplistic beliefs about the world and, and how God interacts with it and so on than their, their pastors would have. But yes, I, I guess the point remains that even for Christians and uh, other people that have these interesting beliefs, we, we need to be polite, we need to be kind, but that shouldn't stop us from challenging them. And I, I think in our newsletters, hopefully we can all continue to be as politically correct as we can be. And uh, what I'd be interested in is, is feedback from people at times when we mess up and we don't give due consideration to a group. You know, if anybody sees that we slip up, like for me, I 
I haven't had it directly, but I've seen other people being pulled up for using the word crazy, for example. Now, I'm not totally sure about where things stand on the use of this word, which is quite a popular word, and whether it is actually seen as being a problem for the mental health community. But I'd be interested when I use a word that I probably shouldn't be using to hear people let me know that you know there are alternatives that I can use instead. I certainly find myself as I'm writing the newsletters, wondering about certain phrases that I'm using and whether I'm, whether I'm actually using them in a manner that is, could potentially be offensive. But it turns out our feedback so far is mainly that we're not offensive enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately. I, I think the other thing I wanted to uh, sort of cover briefly too was um, about the perception of what sceptics should be against. And r- recently I had a bit of interaction on, on Twitter with a tweet I put out about um, how I'd, I'd recently paid my provisional taxes. And and I guess to, to be slightly political, I was saying that I was um, happy to pay my taxes and I, I didn't want a tax cut um, on, the, on the basis that I think uh, taxes are the, the price of living in a... <laughs> in a civilized society. And then uh, obviously people, there were some people that uh, reacted to that and looked up my profile and saw that I listed myself as the chair of the New Zealand skeptics. And, uh, and then they commented that um, what I'm, what on earth am I doing being the chair of the New Zealand skeptics if I'm um, happy to pay taxes. So they'd somehow in their mind um, equated skepticism with being anti-government and, and being libertarian and, and uh, wanting to <laughs> not pay any tax. Oh dear, yeah, that that's a pretty obvious mistake, isn't it? Hmm. But I can understand how people would get there. Yes, there seem to be a lot of people like that around. Perhaps traditionally, the the sceptic you know, community, at least internationally, has been populated by um, some people who are sort of more leaning towards that libertarian end of the political skeptic spectrum. Yeah, some in high places, definitely. I'm I'm actually interested in that idea that the whole thing of you know politics and and how it intersects with skepticism and you know I I think when it comes to the ideas of PC and which political party you vote for and all of that it's it's not a skeptical thing. Um, but at the same time, there are some choices that I think make you more of a kind human being, and some that make you less of a kind human being make you. <sighs> at least look like you you care less about other people. Um, and I'm certainly interested personally in trying to be the kind of person that thinks more about others and tries to help them. I'm in a, you know, as a white man, I'm in a privileged position. So the more I can do, like paying taxes that helps other people, the happier I am. And I'm certainly not going to try and do something silly like employ an accountant to minimize my taxes by going through a family trust and all this kind of other stuff, because Taxes are there for a reason to keep our society going. So apologies Alexander. for any of our listeners that are avoiding their taxes, but uh, I don't agree with you. Alexander, you even nodded off, have you? I was thinking that the willingness to pay tax is a sign of whether you think the government is honest or corrupt. And if the mm-hmm. government is corrupt, then you don't want to pay tax because you think, oh, that money's just going in the pocket of you know my evil dictator. It's buying shoes from Elder Marcos. It's buying a new yacht for Vladimir Putin. So I think there's, um, you know, there's a self-reinforcing cycle in either direction that if the government works well, then you feel comfortable paying money to it. If the government doesn't work well, you don't want to pay money to it. But then the government doesn't get money, then it doesn't do a good job, and people are less likely to want to pay it or pay Mm. their taxes. 
Yes, I think I was trying to um, at least address the situation in New Zealand and fairly clear in my mind that the government is not corrupt, uh, certainly not in the sense that uh, many governments internationally are, as we've seen. Uh, well, think, you know, uh, that's, that's lovely, but, uh, you know, it's good to remember that in um, other parts of the world, uh, other situations uh, mm, true. Sure. Um, the other thing that I covered in the newsletter that was slightly controversial was the discussion about guns. Honestly, uh, you uh, and Bronwyn, were you just out to poke the bear this week with this newsletter between periods and LGBTQIA and guns? What were you two doing? Playing God is what we were doing, <laughs> which I guess would be unskeptical, yeah. but. So I, I was commenting on the the recent mass shootings in the in the US, of which the, there's been one um, in Texas in a, in a small town where a, an 18-year-old went and uh, shot up a primary school and uh, ended up killing 19 uh, sort of nine and 10-year-olds and, and a couple of teachers um, and commenting on just how messed up uh, the situation is with guns in the US. And we didn't really get any pushback on that, um, but there, w- there was some comment on the uh, the skeptics <laughs> On the closed skeptics group uh, on Facebook about how some somebody thought it might be better to actually try and address the problem by identifying people who had issues that were likely to go and do these shootings. And to me, I think that's very difficult to do. But if you actually read about the history of um, this particular eighteen-year-old who who committed this heinous act, um, it certainly looks in hindsight like it, it was a uh, he was uh, sort of bullied at school and um, he was a loner and didn't really have any friends. And I mean, in hindsight, it looks like, yes, this is the, exactly the kind of person who would go and do that sort of thing. I, I maintain that it's the easy access to guns that allowed him to do this and do so much damage. Um, so as, as soon as he turned 18, essentially, he went and was able to purchase an AR-15 style rifle um, and a huge amount of ammunition and, and go and um, shoot up the school. And also on a basically buy now, pay later basis, as he's now deceased, he will not be paying later. Um, but yeah. So anyway, what do you think about that? I mean, I was in grade nine in Canada when Columbine happened. So, you know, one thing that sort of ricocheted throughout all the high schools and you end up hearing about it also when you're in university and you have American international students come in is talking about really that gut reaction by principals to immediately start pointing out people that they thought was going to be the next trench coat mafia. So we've seen Mm -hmm. that behavior before and Actually, it was quite damaging. Um, I knew people who were kicked out of school, who had to change schools, who were bullied by staff because they're a bunch of goths. You know, they played mm. D&D in the corner. Um, overall, harmless, but they look scary. I was saying, you know, I guess at this point now the trend is less about what does the kid look like and then go sort of more into disability when you're looking into mental health and does this kid, is this kid on medication for ADHD, depression, you know, so you're sort of, you know, you're villainizing um, mental illness and neurological differences, which can also, you know, be even more damaging. 
and a dangerous, me, a dangerous ter- territory to go into. To me, this feels like a counterpoint to the uh, the Galileo gambit. You know, this idea that Galileo was seen as crazy and he turned out to be a genius. Therefore, I look crazy with my silly ideas, so I must be a genius. Um, and that argument that we hear from so many people that have alternative views like the moon you can use to predict the weather. Um, But of course, the answer to that is that for every Galileo, not that the Galileo story is even correct, as I'm sure Alexander will uh, regale us with, um, but for every Galileo that turns out to be a genius, there's a thousand people that look like cranks just because they are cranks. And in the other in the other direction, for every one school kid that's weird in strange ways that the the teachers don't get and they feel that he's dangerous, for every one who will actually decide to do something horrific, there will be a thousand school kids that are probably just like us, a little bit weird at school and bullied occasionally and, and all that kind of other stuff. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Oh, Have I misjudged you, you, Craig? Were you the prom king, Craig? Shame. <laughs> Shame. Come on. How was it at school for you, Craig? Oh, it was all right. Uh... <laughs> Let it all out. Come on. Yeah, you're not making a very persuasive case there. <laughs> well, I wasn't a goth. They didn't exist in my day. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, there were no goths. But, uh, um, I, I guess, I guess, I, guys I, must I, have been in high school in the eighties, at least. Yes, I, I guess, I guess, in at least when I got to high school, there, there was uh, some people who uh, thought I they gave me the nickname of Joe Ninety because of the glasses I was wearing and um, perhaps above average intelligence. Um, anyway. <laughs> I think I we've uh, opened up some deep wounds there for Craig Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Craig. <laughs> I will pay for your first session with the therapist if it comes to that, okay? Okay, very good. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Not a crank therapist, a real one. I don't want to hear you talking about past life regression and how you used to be Henry VIII. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, I guess... I mean, the the main thing I was kind of driving at was that the, the US is is where everybody has guns and um and they're very easy to obtain and if they were less easy to obtain then these sorts of well uh, shootings might not happen as frequently uh, but the, the 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 reading I did about it the interesting thing is that um most most gun violence in the US is actually via handguns and only about four percent of the um, violence, gun violence, is is done with these AR-15 style um, rifles. But I guess that they are the they are the weapon of choice for mass murderers who are going to go and shoot up schools and supermarkets and churches and and so on, which are the most shocking kinds of incidents. I read a story in the news this week. And it was, uh, it was written by a guy who is teaching English in Korea. And he's American, but he's living in Korea and he's teaching English there. And the, the gist of the article was, wow, nobody in Korea thinks American gun laws are a good idea. You know, in America, this is a disputed thing. But it's not in Korea. Everyone just thinks the Americans are crazy. <laughs> and I just... 
thought it was really funny that, uh, you know, it appears to be news for him that the rest of the world thinks America's gun laws are crazy. And we're using the right right term there. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, when we had our skeptics in cyberspace last Friday, we we were talking about this topic as well. Um, When we came to sort of the where the most gun violence actually was, um, one of our attendees did mention, hey, wow, it's actually like handguns. And I think a lot of that violence is, again, um, people not safely taking care of their handguns in the home. And that's where children are getting mm. a handle of it and, you know, causing great injury. The second thing that came up in the chat was um, the enduring legacy of uh, Michael Moore's film or uh, docu edutainment mentory um, film, Bowling for Columbine. And the particularly, um, I guess, for this particular person was um, the salient scene where Michael Moore goes across the goes across the border to Canada, walks up to someone's door and opens it, saying, mm. "Oh, things are so much safer in Canada," but they certainly aren't. As while while we may not have the same um, gun, same anywhere near the same level of gun violence, um, I mean, certainly you can look at our residential schools and see that there's a very different type of violence happening in Canada. But back to the point of the opening of the door is saying, oh, can- Canadians feel so safe. It's so lovely over there. I can definitely say that's a bit of hogwash. I come from Newfoundland. Newfoundland, you know, you know, it's not dangerous. It's not Toronto. It's, you know, we don't have gun or ga- drug or gang violence like you would see in some cities, but we still lock our doors. Well, don't, you know, don't people you can lock still walk your... in and steal stuff. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a weird, it's an enduring image about the difference between Canada and America that you know, with regards to gun violence, that somehow persists, and it's mm. a little bit boggling. Well, don't you lock your doors in Canada so the beers can't get in? <laughs> it's the moose. You don't want the moose, oh, the moose. to go into your house. Right. Correction. <laughs> uh, see, this is the stereotype image that I have of somebody who's not ever been to Canada. Anyway, so we've um, solved the world's problems. Mm-hmm. I think we have. Well, we've we've covered Jesus and guns. Have we done babies yet? Well, we kind of went to, uh, you know, when we're talking about femtech and abortion. So we're talking about not having babies. We're talking about baby prevention here. That's where we went. We have, So we've done the three topics I listed this afternoon in our chat then. Jesus, guns and babies. That makes me happy. Yeah, I think we've um, we've actually been running for quite some time now. Mm. Uh, so well, I think we should. Uh, I, I, I guess I guess some of our listeners who want a longer podcast episode will be happy. Um, yes. Just to interject here before we shut off. Um, this Friday, uh, we'll be having Skeptics in the Pub in Wellington. So we are at the Lobby Lounge in Intercontinental Hotel at 6 p.m. So come join us for some drinks and nibbles. And next Thursday at the Fork and Brewer, in Wellington, also at 6 p.m., will be um, science-based activism with Mark. <laughs> Just waiting to see what you're going to call it this week. <laughs> I know. It's something new every week. It's whatever I want it to be. That's fine. Well, you can also do the introduction next time, Mark. We can share the love. No, no, no. God, now I feel bad. No, you, yeah. you do a much better job than I would. Thank you. <laughs> Emotional labor. <laughs> large by Mark Honeychurch. I'm sorry, I take it all back. All right. That's all I have to say, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have any other events, do we? But maybe we should do something else. Maybe we should organize a visit to something. I need to keep an eye out more. Historically, mm-hmm. we've been to see the Ark Man, who makes scale models of the Ark to show how 
obviously all the animals in the world could have fit fit on and things like that. But we've not done a field trip like that in Wellington for a while. So I will I will go on the hunt. I will 100 percent rate going to see the National Paleontological Collection at GNS in well in uh, Lower Hutt. That's the second time I went this past weekend. It's awesome. You get to see some actual dinosaur fossils from New Zealand. It's it's and the tour guide is really good. How do we get it's to good. go? Um, I if you want to go, you let me know and I can organize something, and we get okay. to go for free. Well, let Let's see if we can do an organized visit for the skeptics. Then that sounds really nice. Mm. And I guess one final thing, if we want to talk about conference, we are always looking for people who may be interested, giving us some ideas about who they'd like to see, or maybe even what activities they want to do. You know, if we wanted, if they want to see maybe a little workshop on science-based activism, um, you know, we are in that space where it's all about possibilities and dreams. So um, help us out. (laughs) All right. You've been listening to the ENR podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback. Come and talk to us on Twitter at ENRPod or send us an email to newsletter at skeptics.nz. We will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Adios. Bye.